Let's go back and think of God's work in this world from beginning and think about ministries, people God's called to serve for his work. Noah. Okay. Why did Noah come to mind? Because he was working full-time for God, building, on, building up something special. Okay. Did Noah have a work that God called him to do? Was he funded by anyone to do that work? By God alone. Okay. No, right? There was no structure of, of uh, support for ministry as we know today, in those days. Simply, God gave this man a call, and he had something specific he wanted him to do. And what was that? Have to build an ark. How long did that project take? More or less. So he was at it for a while. It was a faith venture, was it not? Total work of faith. In fact, it had never rained. And all the intelligent people told Noah it was impossible for it to rain. Scientifically, it couldn't happen. And they labored with him. And he was faithful. And, and part of the interesting reality is when Noah finished the ark, you know how much resource he had left? Personal finances and resource? Assets? Probably nothing. Nothing. You read in Patriarchs and Prophets, Noah invested everything he had in the building of that ark. And when he got done, he got done. He had nothing left in this world that was his. He had invested everything in the building of that ark. Now we can look and look back. Was that a good decision? I know it's part of thing. Definitely right. Had he had any investment left in the world as he knew it, what was soon to happen to it? Well, be destroyed. Going to be gone. Now, there's a book out, it's called Another Art to Build. It was written about 50 years ago. Yeah, W.D. for Z. And I remember when we printed that book up at a little school called Mount Missionary in New Hampshire. <clears throat> it had been a series of pamphlets that, that Elder V. Z. had done, and then it got compiled and put into the book. And, and I recommend this reading if you can find it. It probably is online. I mean... At Wildwood, they probably have a digital copy. Uh, I'm pretty sure Pioneer's Memorial. We have it at Scottsdale. Okay, you have it. Buy it here, actually. Okay, you can get it right here. Yeah, from, oh, okay. from Madison Mission and it's, School. It's so it's, it's reprinted. Yeah. Okay, yeah. good. I didn't know that. Uh, does it still have a little rainbow on the front? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow, man. <laughs> I remember when we did that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a long time ago. Anyway, um, you know, Elder Z puts out there this concept that there is another ark to build, that Jesus is coming soon. The closing chapters 
in the history of this world is the time in which we're living and that there's another ark to build. And as God's people, we can take courage and, and look at Noah's example as a safe example to follow. So he could be one of our early supporting ministries when we look back historically and, and uh, see a person who responded to the call of God, had a work to do, and didn't look to other people to provide the resources for that. He didn't say, well, if this organization funds me, I'll build the ark. He went forward, and he took what was in his hand, he took what he had, and he invested it. Now, let's, let's continue on through time. Do any other names spring up to you as people who would be in a supporting ministry category? Enoch. Enoch, thank you. And he was actually before Noah, wasn't he? Now, I don't know if Enoch's outpost is in that book. That um, Here, we'll get you a chair. Is Enix Outpost a chapter in that book? Another art to build? You don't know. It is. It is? Yeah. Okay. Okay. What did. What was Enix? What, what did Enix do? It says that he was. It's actually interesting in the prophecy. I haven't read it that much, but I've heard it. That he, he was actually going to cities and. and. and just, yeah finding out what needs people and serving to these needs and, and reaching people's confidence and then then bidding them come out of the cities and and join him in his where he lived outside of the city. Mm-hmm. And that's that way bringing yeah, back to God. She uses that as an illustration on how to work to the, the cities. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, a lot's changed in a hundred years, but the idea that, that you, in, in following the Enoch's example was he would go out in nature, out in his outpost, and he would spend time with God and communing, and he would get charged, so to speak. He would get, and then he would go into the cities and labor for people for a certain amount of time. Then he would leave, and whoever he administered to that was willing, he would take with him out into the country, out to where he lived, and minister to them there. And that's where we get our modern-day idea of of outpost centers. We'll get to that name a little bit later on, more detail. So Enoch would be another one, I agree, of of a supporting ministry-type person who uh, was putting their own resources, their time, their labors into this ministry. Someone else? I'm kind of thinking of Nehemiah, but maybe not fits the okay. perfectly. <laughs> right. No. But Good. He, he did not, because Nehemiah did not really accept any wages, even though he was entitled to it. So he was okay. really putting his all his all his own investment into the work, which was very specific, which was building uh, the wall. Okay. So, very good. Now the call came to Enoch different than it came. Uh, not Enoch, excuse me, to Nehemiah different than it came to Noah. How did Nehemiah get this call, get this burden? Well, got some news from his, uh, his uh, Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And when he heard the news, what happened? He prayed. 
he prayed. What happened to his heart when he heard that news? Big burden on his heart. It became something he couldn't let go of. It became something he carried so much so that who noticed? That was a risk. There's a risk. You don't be unhappy around the king. You know, the king doesn't pay you for that. You know, he, he, he's got a lot on his mind. He's got a lot of things to do. But it shows you that like Joseph, Nehemiah had been brought into a, a relationship, I want to say, of endearment with the king. The king appreciated his, this guy. He appreciated his contribution into his life and into his service. And the king recognized, hey, this is, this is sickness of heart. What's on your mind? What, what's, what's troubling you? And that was a providential opening for Nehemiah to share. Like, this is, this is my situation. And uh, he did get resources, and that was very good. He got, he got lots of resources from the king to go out there and to do this work. Um, direct call from God and, and a direct response that I'm going to go out and do this. This is a burden God's put on my heart, and uh, it's not safe. I'm sure none of these men felt safe to set aside the burden or the call that they had to respond, but you know, but they responded and went. Okay, good example. Someone else thinking of anybody? Biblical characters. Paul. Paul. Okay, now we go down to the, we jump a long ways, which is good, and we get to the New Testament. Paul's a, a very special, very. Uh, stimulating character for me in scripture, as it may be for you. In Paul's time, was there a system of remuneration already established for those that worked for God, for those that were appointed to work for God? Okay. No? Yes? In certain ways. Because uh, Paul says that uh, he, the reason why he worked so hard as he did was, uh, for example, uh, I don't remember exactly which city it was, he said that he could have gotten payment for the work he did, but he chose not to in order not to be a burden. Mm -hmm. Right. There were actually two systems. There was that one, and just prior to Paul's conversion, and even after, there was a system ordained of God that had been established to care for those that would do ministry. Something you're all familiar with. For the Levites. Okay. The Levites. There was a tithing system, right? And that was throughout Israel, and the workers at the temple, workers in service for God, were supported by the tithe. Right? You agree? Yeah, that was God-ordained system of how when the children moved into the promised land, it was established and set up for it to be this way. And so that is obviously ordained of God and um, something to be appreciated, something to be embraced. If you were in the family of Aaron and you're doing ministry, don't you believe that was an honor? A privilege to serve at the temple? To, to work with the, uh, I want to say, articles or the paraphernalia, uh, 
to be a priest, to be a Levite. It was a sacred responsibility. And it was very special, very solemn, a great privilege to do that. And so that system was there in the time of Jesus, in the time of the disciples, in the time of Paul. But you mentioned Paul said he could have been supported, right? But he chose not to. By then, other disciples were being supported by what? Well, the definitely was, you say, a group of people that had a burden for this mission and supported it. Okay. The Christian church, where do we get the concept of tithes and offerings as a church? From the Israel history? Right. But the Levites did it, but also the early church set up a system of tithes and offerings. Remember reading, Paul went around, they picked up offerings, and where did he take them? Jerusalem. Yeah, thank you. He took them to Jerusalem. That's very interesting. He could have lived from it, like the other disciples, but he chose not to. And I think it's an act. Um, I want to say... Do we know that it was a tenth that they... Um, or was it just offerings? Does it say in the Bible that it was really Well, well that's, that's a good question. I was just trying to think where in Acts um, I wanted to go to read about more, not, not that detail specifically, but more um, Paul's sentiments and, and attitudes. Paul said, I have coveted no man's silver or gold. He says, you know how my own hands have labored to generate the income for me and for those that have been with me. You familiar with that passage? Huh? Yeah, some of you are. He was entitled, but he chose not to take from the offerings that came in. He chose to bring them on to Jerusalem and to labor with his own hands. Any idea what he did? Tent making. And he would labor with his hands, earn money, selling his tents, fixing tents, whatever it was, and then he would fund his work that way. And he's really, in the New Testament, our, our uh, very good example of someone who chose to do a supporting ministry. Did that negate or take away from the work of the other disciples? There wasn't a right way or a wrong way. There was just more than one way. And so Paul chose that way. And, and many of his and, and supporting ministries will use Paul as an example of this type of ministry. Paul was a radical, though. You have to kind of, you know, you get that picture of him. 
He's a very outspoken character, a man full of energy. He will stop at nothing. Um, had a direct call from God and um, easy for him to be independent. Okay. He says, when I got this call, I didn't, I didn't discuss it with anybody. I didn't counsel with anybody. I just did what God told me to do. Right? He didn't, he didn't ask for advice. He, he just went to do the work that God called him to do. And yet we see that he did counsel, he did work uh, with the other disciples and with the other apostles. Uh, tremendous work that God used Paul to go out and do. And at the same time, the church was being supported by resources, uh, which was 100% uh, ordained by God to support the work of ministry. So that pattern kind of followed down through the years. And, and at some point in time, a movement began called the Great Advent Movement. Familiar with that? Someone. And the Seventh-day Adventist Church grew out of that. And I'm sure you're familiar with the names James and Ellen White. That you know, They were pioneers with Loftborough and a pile of other guys that started the Advent movement. Now, as they studied and prayed and this awakening came, the coming of Jesus was soon, they got a burden start sharing this news of the second coming with other Christians, right? And uh, James White came up with a little paper named Present Truth. Now, who was funding James and Ellen White to do this mission work? I think it was pretty interesting. I'm not sure if that's the one you talked about. But if, if that's the one, then uh, Ellen White's to his husband to start to print and, and people send the money as, as as you as you print and they'll support you'll be able to to improve and expand. Right. And I also also think that actually uh, that support uh, things that you have and even beyond with what they have they're actually you could say there a statement sense was uh, very much in debt when they died, which is an interesting thing. In debt? Yeah, which is, uh, yeah, there, like, there are, of course, reasons she gives for that. For example, for example, read that she did certain things, bought certain things with loan money because otherwise the work would be so hindered. Right. If she wouldn't have done that. So, yeah, thought it was interesting. So, again, we have a, some people that feel called of God to serve, to do a specific ministry. For them, it was to proclaim in the churches that Jesus is coming soon. And then they started printing this little paper, Present Truth, and they studied, and they, some la a lady named Rachel Oaks uh, kind of rebuked them. They said they were keeping God's commandments, and they weren't. And they asked, well, what commandments are we keeping? And she told them about the Sabbath. And they studied that, and they realized, oh, wow, you know, this lady's right. We're telling people to keep the commandments, and we're not keeping all the commandments. And so that's, you know, how the Seventh-day Adventist Church started to come into being. And in the early days, there was no 
centered with tithes and offerings where people would send that money to and ministers were paid from that and the gospel work was paid from that. But that formed in time as the church grew, as God blessed their efforts and resources were needed. Then the church became established and the system that we know, we're familiar with today, um, came into being. And again, you, as you, you read, you see providentially God raised up this movement, raised up this church, and has provided for it amazingly well through the years. And so, after the pioneering years, I do want to say this though, you know, um, Ellen White makes the statement that the work will end in greater sacrifice than with which it began. Have you ever heard that? No. No? Okay. We'll find it. The work will end with greater sacrifice than with which it began. Now, when you go back and read that day, what her experience had been, they'd been traveling in Michigan and going across the, the lake on ice in a sleigh. And the weather was so cold that they kept looking at each other's faces to make sure they weren't frostbitten. And she says, I had an apple to eat today. Now the work's going to end in greater sacrifice than with which it began. Okay? That, that gives some relativity to that statement. Okay? But obviously, these people were constrained by something. They were compelled, they were motivated by something that allowed them to go to those lengths, to do that type of work. Now, what was that? Thank you. You were in the workshop this morning. Okay. It's only God's love that has been affected our lives, that we have seen, that we've tasted, that has embraced it, that can be the motivator and the compelling force to go out and do this. Okay. They had a burden put on their hearts by God for people to receive eternal life. Okay? They wanted to work with the agencies of heaven to bring that about. Now, I have a personal belief that God's greatest desire is that each person receive eternal life. Do you believe that? Heaven is doing everything heaven possibly can to get people for eternity. The last thing God wants to do is look down and find reasons for people not to enter the kingdom. That is not God's mindset. God is doing everything he can to get people into the kingdom. He paid a great price. He went to great lengths in order that salvation would be provided and his desire is that we receive it. And he's working actively in every way that heaven can for that to happen. And James and Ellen White were compelled by this. Hey, we need to be in harmony and working with God and reaching these people for eternity, and it allowed them to sacrifice as they did. Okay? They counted it a joy to sacrifice as they did. And the work's going to end in greater sacrifice than when which it began. There's, uh, so the church got started, and I think James White became the first GC president, and then there were other general conference presidents that came into order, and in the late 1800s, 
a movement began within our church. An awakening started to happen. And I'm going to have someone to keep time because I am not a good time keep time. With a clock in the other room, five hundred five. Oh, it's it's what five hundred five. And we go to five thirty. Okay, okay. Just, so just keep me posted. Thank you. Um, there was a message that came in a very powerful way. A couple of messages that God sent to His people. And one of those messages is the messages of righteousness by faith. Have you heard that term? Okay. Justification by faith, righteousness by faith. Now, in any group that we would go to, we would ask people, raise your hand if you believe in righteousness by works. Who would dare raise their hand to say, that's what I believe? Okay. All Seventh-day Adventists would like to say, we believe in righteousness by faith. Is that right? We would, we would be very reluctant to say. Yeah, we, we know that's the proper answer. We should say we believe in righteousness by faith. And this message built, and it, it, Jones and Wagner and a few others, and Ellen White, were proclaiming this message of Christ our righteousness and how precious Jesus is and how if we allow the matchless charms of Christ to work in our lives, we will be drawn. We will be transformed. Okay? And, and it was during this time, Ellen White wrote this statement. It's in the book, Mount of Blessing. God has made provision that we may become like unto him. And he will accomplish this for all who do not interpose the perverse will and thus frustrate his grace. Okay? God's made that provision, and he's going to do it for how many? For all. It would be wonderful if the statement ended there. For all who do not interpose the perverse will and thus frustrate his grace. She was saying things like, all that man can do on behalf of his own salvation is to accept the invitation. All you can do is receive what God has done for you. But there was a strong element saying, well, you've got to keep the law. You can't just receive this. You've got to keep the law. And you know what her response was? We have preached the law, the law until it's as dry as the hills of Gilboa that seeth neither dew nor rain. We've been preaching that. We need to receive the righteousness of Christ. We need to receive this gift that God has for us. She says, God's part in salvation is infinitely great. Man's part in salvation is infinitely small. But what do we choose to focus on? You got to do your part. You don't do your part, Dustin, you're not going. Okay. And so we focus on the part that's infinitely small when the part that's infinitely great is lost sight of. And so this, this, this urge uh, for this message of righteousness by faith to be embraced by the church was very strong. And, and for some of you that studied into this, 1888 is kind of the key number there because it was at that general conference session when this was presented and it was rejected. You study what Ellen White had to say about it. She says, we insulted Jesus 
in the person of the Holy Spirit. And we would not receive this message. As a church leadership group at large, we would not do it. Now, I want to say something here. It's easy for us to be just like the Jews. The Jews, what, what did they build to the prophets that had been killed? What did they build? Remember what Jesus said? Yeah. You build sepulchers. You build these monuments to the prophets that were killed. And you say, what? We want to kill them if they were. If we were there, we would not have done this. Okay? That's what you say, Jesus told them. But what else did he say? Let me tell you. From Abel to Zechariah, the blood will be on you, on this generation. Because they rejected him. And so it's easy for us to think, well, we were there. For sure we would have accepted this light from having this message, this urging that, but would we? I don't know. better question is, will we accept it now? Now, my point is not to present that message to you. I would love to. Okay, But my point is, in the historical picture of the motion of the Advent movement, it's important that we realize that this was a very large dynamic in what was going to soon happen within the church. Another message in the church was coming called the health message. Okay, you familiar with that? You ever heard about the health message? Yeah, some of you familiar? And there, Ellen White was writing, and there was a man named John Harvey Kellogg. Some of you heard of Kellogg? Amazing man. I mean, God, God um, blessed John Harvey Kellogg. I don't want to say more than any person I've read about, but as you read the blessings that God poured out upon John Harvey Kellogg and the ability that this man had, it is just amazing. Ellen White says, as you did surgery, other surgeons watching you, other doctors watching you, were amazed at your skill. Little did they know angels were guiding your hands as you performed your work. Okay. That's something, to have that heavenly influence. He had a keen mind. John Harvey Kellogg was able to recognize treatments that should be embraced and treatments that should be shunned. And someone came in, how do you know? When, when he saw something and he knew it would work, he would take it and he would use it with all the energy he could and it would be great. There'd be another treatment at the same time and he would ignore it. If it fit in line with what Ellen White counseled about health and how God works, John Harvey Kellogg would embrace it. If it did not fit in there, he would leave it alone. Plus, okay. he was... He was Extremely active guy, active mind. You know, he hated to sleep. He hated to waste time sleeping. He was always trying to figure out how he could spend less time sleeping. Was he a self-supporting? I mean, a supporting ministry? Well, I, no, not yet. No, I wouldn't say he was at all. Um, he was. He was. Um, Ellen White helped him through medical school. Okay, she. He, James. Uh, John Harvey Kellogg was a person very dear to Ellen White. And again, there was a resistance within the church family to embrace this health message. Okay? It, 
as clear as it was, as much support as Ellen White was giving it, as the work that John Harvey Kellogg was doing was expanding, there was a reticence, a resistance towards this message that God was bringing. And here we see it's really the great controversy. Okay? We've got a, the conflict far exceeds what our eyes can take in. Would you agree? Okay. There's evil forces. There's righteous angels. There's fallen angels. This battle for souls is going on. This battle was being played out to keep God's people from embracing light, from embracing. Now, he says if we had accepted that message, Jesus would have come. Okay. We wouldn't be sitting here having this discussion. Jesus would have come had God's people embraced the message. And by Satan working to get us not to embrace it, it is delayed. And, and as you study Advent history, you see different times when, when things were building. If we responded to God, the work would go quickly and be done. If we rejected, we'd still be here. She writes a statement that says, we may have to remain here many more years because of insubordination. You know what insubordination is? Disobedience. Yeah, disobedience. God's telling us to do something and we don't want to do it. Now, the children of Israel were on the borders of the promised land and Moses says, okay, hey, there's spies, one out, and ten bad reports, two good reports, and Caleb and Joshua are saying what? Hey, let's go do it. We can do this. And the other guys are saying, man, we're grasshoppers in their sight, man. In their sight, we're grasshoppers, and in our sight, we're grasshoppers. We can't go in. Could they have gone in? They could have. Did they? No, they had to remain 40 years in the wilderness because of insubordination. And so there's correlation there for God's people today. It's important as we, in, to see these things in history. Now, I want to tell you something I should have started with. The reciting of all history is bias. Okay. You know what bias is? Favorite in a certain direction. If you listen to different news, news is bias. If you listen to this news station, they present it one way. You listen to it on BBC, they do another way. If you listen to the Arab station, uh, that really gives you different perspective of the news. Okay. So the recording and the reciting of history is biased. My recording, my reciting this to you is biased. It's the version I like. Okay. And I'm not, I'm not apologizing for that because there's no other way to recite history. Are you familiar with the book, The History of the Reformation? Have you ever heard of that book? Okay, by Daubigny. Ellen White quotes a lot from the book, History of the Reformation. Now, the great controversy the, the, the final book. That's, that's, a, that's a commentary on the history of the Reformation. That's Ellen White's version. If you want to get a Catholic version of the history of the Reformation, do you think you would hear a different recording of it? Yeah. Okay. So my point is, the reciting of history is biased. And so what I'm sharing with you is things I've studied and researched and what I've come out with. Now, obviously, I believe in it in the version I'm telling you. Okay. Now, you can go back, you can study these materials and find out if what I'm saying is authentic or not. And I advise you to do that, although it's going to take you some time. And I can point you to those resources. 
if you like history. To me, studying these things and learning these things was, was very, very fascinating to me. And I got very caught up with the characters. Okay? Some of the characters, like Ellen White, you know, I really enjoyed. And Jones and Wagner and Kellogg. And I feel you know, it's terrible what happened to Kellogg. And maybe we'll talk about that. But uh, there were people. These were leaders. These were you know, flesh and blood. And as you, you study these things, you kind of get, uh, like with Paul, you know, he, he's one of my favorite Bible characters. I really enjoy him as a person. And so, our early pioneers, I had this similar experience. James, Ellen White was, was heartbroken um, as she had to work with us, with God's people, try to get us to go in the direction God was guiding and our continual reluctance to do that. It must have been just an extremely painful um, experience because God was showing her things, revealing what needed to happen to her, and yet it wasn't accepted. It was resisted. And, and it's kind of like a parent, you know, when you know where your child's going to end up and you're pleading them, don't do this, okay, this is not going to be good. But they do it anyway. And then they get into pain and they get into sorrow and they hurt themselves. As parents, you're grieved because you, you don't want to see that happen. And so by rejecting this message of righteousness by faith, she knew the effect, the hurt it would be. And, and what she did was... Um, she says, okay, the church leaders don't want to accept it. We're going to take it to the people. And so she started to go to camp meetings with Jones and Wagner and proclaim this message of Christ our righteousness to give the people in the churches the opportunity to receive it. Was that supporting ministry, these camp meetings? No, no, so these, were all, these were all organized. I mean, in my mind, they're all organized for the churches. And, and Ellen White was always very supportive of the system of administration and church work that God had led the Adventist church into. We didn't just happen to get the structure we had. It was, we were led into it through the workings of the Holy Spirit and, and established in that way. The, the Adventist church is an amazing organism, even today. I mean, it's, it's a huge organism. And it's one of the few churches that is tightly knit together uh, on the face of the world, aside from the Catholic Church. It's, 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 and it's because of how God put it together. Obviously, humanity is not without fault. So, we had this health message, five minutes, ten minutes. We had this health message, and we had this, this righteousness by faith message. And people that were able to embrace these messages, both of them, were able to be used by God to do a very interesting and good work. Those that rejected one or the other tended to get imbalanced and, and uh, flounder. Now, now comes to the stage in our little quote of history here, two men named Sutherland and McGann, E.A. Sutherland and Percy McGann. McGann was an Irishman, Sutherland was American, and they had gone to school at Battle Creek when 
Ellen White lived there. And Percy McGann lived in Ellen White's home, and his theology was formed with her input, let me say. He perceived the gospel and understood the gospel in light of the great controversy. And because of his close relationship to her, he would refer to her as Mother White. Now you can imagine this young immigrant comes in and he, he wants to go to school and she opens her home to him. And this is the Lord's prophet. This is the Lord's messenger in this church. And you're just a kid, man. You're a teenager. You can imagine the apprehension he had. And so he, he talks about the first day he came down and uh, from his bedroom and, and Ellen White was there and she said, come over here. I want to I want to see you. You know, I want to. So she greeted him and looked at him, and, and she noticed that he had a button missing on his shirt. And he, she said, go get the sewing basket, and I'll sew that on for you before you go to school. And she was a very motherly person, and had children of her home, had a keen interest in young people. And this is the relationship that McGann had with her as he went to school. And uh, so... Oh, will you keep me out of time? Yeah, we just have to be there at the beginning. Okay. So you can keep going. You have eight minutes still. Okay. So, um, make no mistake, Percy understood the privilege he had in having this experience and having such an intimate relationship with this, with this lady and uh, her willingness to have him there so he could go and get a Christian education and learn. And so he soon became friends with a guy named E.A. Sutherland, Edward Sutherland, and they were classmates together there in Berrien Springs. They studied together and graduated. Sutherland went out and he started a few years later a school called Walla Walla College. And um, Sutherland had this crazy idea, a radical idea, that the Bible should be the textbook for every class. Now, it wasn't that the Bible was the only textbook, but he wanted the Bible to be in every class. And he established Walla Walla College on that foundation. And it actually worked quite well. He went out there as a young man and raised up this college and got it operating, got it working well. Um, A crisis was growing within the church at this time. Ellen White had been writing about true education and what our schools needed to look like and the, the, the classes and the sentiments and the program that should be in our educational institutions. Uh, she wrote telling people, don't send your children to Battle Creek. Don't send them here to school. If they come here to school, it's great danger because of what was being taught. Now, you can imagine, that's tragic. And that's our denominational school, and we've got God's servant saying, don't send your kids here. It's not safe. Kellogg has become a phenomenon. I mean, people from Norway, from Sweden, princes, kings, are going to Battle Creek to get treated. Okay. 
He was world-renowned. Battle Creek Sanitarium was not some small, secluded, no. In, in its day, it was the premier place of healing for anywhere. It was, it was really an amazing medical facility. John Harvey Kellogg's fame was growing, understandably so. But Kellogg was also drifting in his theology. The school was drifting in its Christian education program. Jones and Wagner are still, and Ellen White are still trying to promote this message of righteousness by faith. And Ellen White is writing strong statements about educational reform that needs to happen within the school's denomination. Well, Jones becomes the editor of the Review and Herald, which is the church's primary source of communication. Excuse me, I have a question. Um, tell me if I may be too impatient. Maybe no. you're just uh, on the way to that, but yeah. I personally have lost the link to supporting ministries. You, Maybe you, you will soon get it. Thank you. You will soon get it. And, and I, I wouldn't share this with you were it not important, because supporting ministries was born out of this, I don't want to say crisis, but this critical point in the church's history. Okay, thank you. Okay, and now, and then. We'll, we'll introduce it now, and then tomorrow we'll get it. What happened was, Jones and Wagner were the review. They were good friends with Kellogg. Jones and Wagner were health reformers. They embraced it. Most of our church leaders did not embrace health reform and were at odds with Kellogg and were very jealous that Kellogg was getting so much popularity. Okay. Kellogg had more workers in the sanitarium than the church had around the world. Okay. Give you an idea of how the growth of the medical missionary work. Jones gets Battle Creek to give Sutherland a call to come back and to put the college in the right path of education. Sutherland asked McGinn to join him. They come back to Battle Creek. They take responsibility for the college. And the first thing they do is plow up the football field and plant potatoes. Okay. God had never intended that school to be in Battle Creek. It should have been outside of Battle Creek. There was land out by what they call the old fairgrounds. And Ellen White had encouraged them to purchase that land there and have the college outside the city. She left, went back to California, and they bought that property, 12 acres in town. When she heard about it, she wept because she knew the school should not be there. The school needed to be out. Oh, thank you. So there's a movement going on here. Okay, You've got many conflicting realities happening in the church. You've got God wanting to do something, and you have his people resisting it. You have righteousness by faith, you have the health message, you have Ellen White writing about true education, warning people not to send their children to Battle Creek. And now these two educators, Southern began, are called back to Battle Creek to try to set the school in a path that comes into harmony 
with the vision of true education that Ellen White had been writing about. Was it Jones that uh, invited the, the Megan and Sutherland? It was he, was. he was one of the supporters for that to happen. He and Kellogg. Okay. Kellogg. So Kellogg wanted to? McGinn, McGinn had embraced the health message. And it was under McGinn's influence that his buddy Sutherland also became a vegetarian. Okay, and so these things are, are connected, these, these, these dynamics, but these messages of righteousness by faith, the health message and education are all connected. And tomorrow, you're going to see what happened and how supporting ministries came out of that. These are the characters, these are the people, these are the messages involved in what happens next. Had the church related to these dynamics differently and embraced them, we would be having a different discussion today. But for now, we'll leave it there. And um, it's a very, as you'll see, it's a very dynamic time in the history of the church. There's strong personalities, there's capable individuals, and God was trying to do something very specific for his people and for the world. And is the beginning of the 20th century, right? Right, it's right at the beginning of the or is it Early 1900s, late 1800s, early 1900s is, is what we're talking about. But I appreciate your patience, and you will, you, will, you will see. But there's a statement that says, we have nothing to fear in the future, what? Lest we forget God's working in the past. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.